Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I'm your host, Ness in Birmingham. Today we're talking to Laksh Athani, co-founder and CEO of Charm Therapeutics. Laksh is a scientist turned entrepreneur. He received his degree in natural sciences from the University of Cambridge. While at university, he co-founded Genie, an AI company that automatically summarizes background reading, producing blogs, articles, and reports. I would note, but not podcasts. He joined Accentia, where he was a core contributor to their AI platform, following which he co-founded Charm with David Baker. Please join me in welcoming Laksh to Between the Biotech Waves. Laksh, it's great to have you here today. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time for this. You know, you, you've had a very interesting uh, history and sort of process to becoming CEO of Charm. Um, you know, when we look at AI, the role of AI, uh, and your involvement in sort of that evolution from a drug discovery and development standpoint, it's really been amazing the sort of revolution that's taken place. Can you walk through sort of your experience and, and how that kind of evolution has happened for, through your lens and what led to actually then the formation of Charm? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think people have been applying AI, you know, to drug discovery in a lot of ways. There was this famous, you know, um, cover on this magazine from the 1980s that, you know, everyone, everyone will know about. Um, and people have really been applying statistical methods, you know, for, for, for decades, right? I think, you know, it was really sort of, you know, when, when these next generation machine learning models came out, um, like generative chemistry, um, you know, and, and sort of like more advanced statistical methods that people really started catching on, right? So I think, you know, one of the pioneers, um, which is actually where I used to work, um, you, you know, was Excientia, right? And they were founded um, in, in 2012. Um, and, you know, I think they've really pioneered this, you know, concept of generative chemistry. And so, you know, I, I, I would say that was like, you know, uh, like the sort of rekindling of interest in, you know, using AI um, for, for, for small molecule, you know, drug discovery and, and, and you know, chemistry in, in, in particular. Um, you know, the way Charm was founded was, you know, essentially um, in 2020, late 2020, so uh, to, be, uh, to be precise, the 30th of November 2020, um, that's the date that I believe that AlphaFold was announced, right? And then after that, you know, I, I really saw that as a big sort of breakthrough. Uh, and so, you know, after Alphold was announced, then, um, you know, Rosettafold was sort of announced and then they were both published on the same day. Um, and, you know, then there was really sort of a huge interest in this field. And, um, you know, why was that the tipping point? Well, I think, you know, before people were, there was always, you know, skepticism on, you know, if a, whatever the machine produced, could a human have produced that, right? So, you know, if the machine comes up with a molecule, uh, you know, it might be very similar to a molecule that's already in the literature. And so people were, you know, fundamentally quite skeptical. They, they would just say, well, sure, the AI came out with this, but I could have done that as a chemist, right? I think with Alphold, what was really, really interesting was, you know, no human can even come close to predicting, you know, what the structure of a protein is, right? And you know, AlphaFold 2 was able to do that with unprecedented levels of accuracy. So I think it really opened, you know, the field. And then, you know, RosettaFold um, with, with similar levels of accuracy. Um, and so then, yeah, you, you know, I, I decided to sort of, you know, form the basis of the company around using those types of techniques, which is essentially um, deep learning on 3D, on, you know, 3D objects in the biological sciences um, and trying to apply that to 
small molecule drug discovery. Now, actually, um, just pause for one sec, right? When I think about some of the listeners here, you know, there are terminology that people throw out that may be just worth our while to take a second to explain it. So, you know, AI, I think people have got, when you talk about deep learning, what, is that, what does that kind of mean? Yeah, so deep learning is a, you know, is a, type, of, is a type of machine learning. Um, and essentially, you can think of deep learning as, as being a lot more expressive and being able to be trained on um, a lot more data and, and data that's much coarser. So the normal input to machine learning is tabular data. That, that's one way to think about it. You, you know, let's say, uh, for example, uh, you have, you know, what, what different links the user has clicked on, right? You can uh, format that in, in terms of the table. But for deep learning, that can really process more complex images, more complex data types like images, um, you know, or, or videos, or, or even you know, protein sequences and, and small molecules. So, you know, that that's sort of one way to think about it. Okay, um, so it, it can iterate on and actually extrapolate from into something new, something like Dolly two or whatever, right? Where it can learn from what's already out there, but actually then form its own structure or its own basis. Yeah, that, that's, you know, that, that's another thing, right? What, what you're getting onto there is generalization. If, if a machine learning model, if a deep learning model was shown you know, a, a certain type of training data, can it then make valid predictions on a, on a completely new type of training data? Um, and that is something I would say deep learning does a lot better than machine learning given the right data. Got it. Okay, let's keep going then with Charm. So... So yeah, so so Charm is you know a small molecule uh, drug discovery company, and what we really pioneered is this uh, protein ligand co-folding, the concept of protein ligand co-folding, and this is where you have a protein sequence, and you don't need to know the structure of this protein sequence, and then you have any uh, small molecule which you can represent as a you know a, a smile string or, or a 2D chemical structure, and then you give it to this co-folding platform, this co-folding algorithm. And then it'll, it uses deep learning to predict the, the co-folded structure of the small molecule bound to the protein. Um, and so, you know, to, to the sort of listeners who have done this stuff before, they'll know that docking has been around for ages, right? right. So what is docking? Docking, you know, and Schrodinger Glide is, you know, the, a very well-established product here. Docking is where you take a crystal structure and you find out how a molecule might fit into that crystal structure of the protein, right? Now, that's great. And, you know, that's sort of uh, played a big role in drug discovery for the last uh, several decades. Um, you know, one of the problems with docking is it assumes that the protein structure is fixed, right? And in reality, that's not the case. The protein is actually flexible. It can move. Um, and, and so, you know, if you think about a, a lot of these important proteins in multiple therapeutic areas, um, you know, they have this sort of um, problem where they actually move. And then that becomes very hard for docking to actually, you know, model that protein well. I'll give you an example, right? KRAS, it's a very well-known protein, you know, in, in oncology. And, you know, uh, that protein is very, it's very flexible, right? Um, but the part where the approved drugs bind to KRAS, that part of the protein is very flexible. And so modeling, you know, trying to find new inhibitors against KRAS with traditional docking is very difficult because it can't, 
you know, account for, for this movement of the protein, depending on the small molecule. Um, and so what our platform does is, because it doesn't rely on, the, on any protein structure to begin with, it just uses the protein sequence to fold, you know, both the protein and small molecule, um, it can sort of deal with this conformational change and induced fit in the protein. Um, and, and that's you know, the, the core platform, and, and that's how you know w- this has been developed with uh, David Baker and, and you know myself and now the team, um, and you know we're taking this forward and applying that to drug discovery program. Obviously, this is a space that's generated a tremendous amount of interest from a partnering standpoint, right? We've seen a lot of deals being done across the sort of area in the utilization of AI, ML. Uh, in drug discovery development with pharma really aggressively stepping in like it's been quite interesting Mm. to see it you know what are you inferring from that or or is it there was always a question if you look back you know what five ten years ago was there enough data were we far enough along to actually be to be able to make those kind of predict predictions you know in silico that really did translate when we got into a wet lab and uh, you know into the wet labs and then moving obviously in vivo and it really feels like we've kind of hit the tipping point on that and that people now believe yeah. that is absolutely the case. What's your observation for that in the deals that have been done? And and one final one, recursion, you know, it was interesting to see sort of, I think recursion was viewed somewhat as a bellwether just from the speed and moving into the clinic and the predictive nature around it. And obviously there was a big step back there. Has that been, you know, have we seen that kind of filter through the whole system or has that been more of a one-off event um, from your perspective? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great question, right? Now, just for the record, you know, I still think as, as a field, we're still quite far away from pressing a button and then a drug candidate pops out ready for clinical trials, right? right? I think that's not necessarily the way to think about it. I think the way to think about it is, can you, you know, reduce the number of experiments you have to do um, and, you know, therefore get, you know, a, a molecule to the clinic quicker to test it? Um, you know, I think in recursion's case, well, you know, look, I'm, I'm sort of mainly focused in, you know, AI for chemistry. And, and actually, I think a- Abraham, who's, you know, on this podcast before, um, sort of gave quite a nice, uh, uh, quite a nice description of the differences of, you know, uh, the two buckets of companies. So, you know, I, I probably won't comment on that one, right? In terms of the deal side for, you know, these types of AI deals, clearly, you know, there's a lot of interest. Um, I think just, you know, a few days ago, Sanofi uh, just announced another deal, right, with uh, Insilico Medicine. Um, so that's now their third AI deal in the time span of like a month or a couple of months. You, you, you've never, uh, at least for me, I've never seen, you know, a single big farmer doing the same type of deal, um, you know, three times in a very, very short period. So clearly, I think that, you know, the field is, is heating up. Um, and, you know, perhaps one, one reason is all this new interest, um, you know, due to, for example, the protein folding algorithm. So shifting gears just a little bit, right? You come along, you know, and you say, okay, we're going to set up this company, uh, obviously with David Baker, which is huge, right? Um, so both of you are doing that, but you're stepping into a period where it's really challenging, right? You're a first time CEO, you go out and what, June, you announced this 50 million Series A financing in what was absolutely, it sort of feels like continues to be a sort of a nuclear winter, you know, in the marketplace. Yeah. 
Can you walk us through that sort of financing process? And, you know, again, you look at who you brought in. It was, it was, it's a great list of investors, right? And then you got Gary Glick onto the board, right, as chair. I mean, in, in what is arguably a very challenging time, and you're in the UK, right? Like, you know, it was like, it's almost like the perfect storm of top, you, you didn't want a simple life here. Walk, walk me through the process for the financing and, and how you managed to get to where you got to, because it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, thanks, Nesta. I appreciate that. And, you know, it, it is an interesting story. I mean, I would say, you know, certainly, yes, while I'm a first-time CEO, having Gary Glick there um, and, you know, all of that experience and, you know, the investors trusting him, I think, you know, that was a key step in, you know, raising the Series A, right? So it was Gary Glick, but then it was also, you know, some of the people that I, that I you know, somehow managed to bring on board, right? So um, Sarah, who's uh, our you know, head of drug discovery, she used to run drug discovery for, for Merck in, you know, in, in the UK, right? So um, we, we were able to attract some pretty good people as well. Um, and that definitely helped. And then, you know, certainly the early results on um, the algorithm as well uh, and, and, and some of the validation examples we were able to show. I think all of that, you know, attracted a lot of interest for the Series A. Um, and, you know, for, yeah, I mean, for the seed, well, there was much less then, but, you know, it, there was basically an idea and a, a very basic prototype, um, you know, and then David Baker wanted to sort of join the company as a co-founder. That was like pretty much all we had. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think hiring is is, is key. I, th- I think that is, uh, that is key. And I guess that's one of, uh, you know, Coastal Ventures' um, favorite mottos, isn't it? Hiring, absolutely. But, you know, with, with a CEO, right, obviously yourself, who is very energetic, very enthusiastic, really is out there to go out and actually change, you know, change uh, a paradigm uh, in drug discovery development. You see this consistently across successful CEOs also, right, who were actually able to go out and raise money, attract good good investors, which, you, which you've done. I think from a market standpoint, it's just a challenging market. So, how, you know, do you... Are you at the point where you're starting to see that impact how you're building the business or is it 50 million in the bank, you're good to go and actually you, you don't have your eye on the market and what's happening there? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, cert- certainly I, I think, you know, we, we did feel that impact a bit right now. Clearly going from the public markets to the private markets, um, you know, and if something happening with public markets, there is a bit of delay for it to seep into the private markets. But certainly, you know, there was there were certain times during the financing process where I felt like I was walking on thin ice, um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's the case for you know any financing. But I feel like that financing, you know, particularly so. I feel like, you know, in in let's say in five out of ten other worlds, or um, this financing might not have happened. So UK. Decided to build a company in the UK versus, you know, not that I'm biased or anything over here in the US in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that is a decision that you that you had to make. Um, and you've obviously, you know, you're going through Brexit. You know, we won't we won't talk about the the issues with the prime minister and you know the financial markets. But what 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 is it like trying to build a company, you know, in in the UK right now with all the turmoil and everything that's going on there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have to say, you know, be, being in the UK and <laughs> keeping all of our money in dollars um, has certainly helped, right? <laughs> um, you, you know, yes, there, there is a lot of turmoil 
Um, but I actually think the UK, you know, has a lot of talent. So, you know, we're based in London and in Cambridge. London is very well known, you know, for its tech and AI um, talent, right? So you've obviously got DeepMind over here, the inventors of Alpha Fold. Um, and then, you know, Cambridge has a lot of, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of biotech. And they also have AstraZeneca, right? So right. I, I think, you know, you, you do have a burgeoning community. Um, and also, you know, if I compare it to Boston, right? So we've had a COO, um, his, his name is uh, Ross, and he, um, you know, used to work in uh, loads of companies in, in Boston and Tech Square. And, you know, he always tells me that it's just so competitive there. Uh, you know, you have people sort of moving from one building to the next when, when, when they take another job. Um, and so, you know, I, I think from, from that sort of standpoint, from, you know, a, a sort of retention standpoint, I think, you know, we're certainly doing a lot better there, right? We, we, we have, you know, around 35 people. Only one person has left and this person left to do, to do his PhD. Mm-hmm. So I think we're doing pretty well from the retention standpoint. And then from a cost standpoint, it sounds like certainly things are cheaper just when you think about running your company and the actual use of your capital in the UK versus yeah. what we're seeing here in, in Cambridge. I mean, yeah, that, that you know, it, it, it's sort of no, it, it's no surprise that, you know, the, the, the sort of salaries are, you know, inflated. Well, maybe inflated is the wrong word, but they're definitely higher, um, you know, in, in, in the sort of US-based hubs like Boston and San Francisco. Um, you know, certainly from that perspective, it's, it's, it's cheaper. And we've also, you know, been doing, you know, quite a lot of remote hires, especially on the software engineering uh, and machine learning side. And, you know, that, that's, an, you know, that's another way sort of to, you know, keep costs down by not hiring people, you know, in very competitive areas. So looking at sort of the continued development of the company, right, and the, the overall, this, this, particular sector in, in, in healthcare. What should people be looking at from Charm that, that is saying this is actually consistently working and, and the paradigm really is shifting as we think about drug discovery and development? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in one's programs, right? So, you know, I, I think as soon as one has strong programs, which they can point to and say, you know, we, uh, we were able to get this program with our technology. Um, you know, I, I think that is, you know, what, one of the biggest sort of value, um, value creating events that can potentially happen to a company, right? And you see this with a lot of companies. Um, you know, so Relay Therapeutics, uh, you know, they're a company that I really admire. You know, they just had a great data readout with their FGFR2 inhibitor, nearly 90% response rate. Um, and I think, you know, and, you know, I, I do believe that they use uh, their technology to obtain that, and that was great. You know, but regardless of that, right, once you get that sort of result, um, where, where it's so much better than, you know, the competition, which in this case was getting much lower response rates, I, I think, you know, that is really something to sort of strive for. And that's certainly what we're striving for as well. Um, you know, get, getting, you know, very, very good response rates in, in, in patients. Um, you know, as we're focused on oncology. You know, so. I was sitting on a panel with Sitsi um, earlier this week. Um, and, you know, one of the things that seemed to be consistently coming up was the concept of, you know, A, the, the target opportunity set, right? Um, and, and the understanding of the relevance of those targets 
when we actually look at it from a patient outcome standpoint. And then secondarily, the sort of for the targets, and you know, you mentioned Keras earlier, you know, when you the, the the level of competitive landscape from a target by target basis, being able to differentiate yourself, you know, in advance of that sort of really strong efficacy, clinical efficacy data that's coming through. Have you, have you any thoughts about that? Like, how do, you, how do you think about the competitive landscape, being able to ensure that people hear the charm story and you're, you're, you're heard above what, there's a, a lot of noise in the oncology space, as you know. Like, how do you actually think about being heard above that sort of background chatter? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, is a, that is a great question. And often when we think about, I think, you know, one, one solution, right, is to do, you know, maybe one target in your portfolio, which is uh, less well-known or, you know, perhaps you're, you're going for a first-in-class medicine, um, you know, with, with that target, right? I think, you know, there's always going to be, um, you know, noise as to, or, or confusion as to who has the best assets. But I do believe that, you know, having the right molecule, um, you know, is important, right? If you look at the EGFR story, uh, you know, first generation and second generation drugs, um, you know, were simply not good enough. They hit the wild type EGFR and, you know, they caused um, rash with the side effects. And then, you know, the third generation drugs like ozimertinib, you know, they were really the ones to really solve the problem. And, you know, now um, that's the standard of care. So... I think the right molecule is very important. You know, the molecule with the right mechanism of action and the, the right amount of selectivity. Um, and preclinically, are you, you know, you use, it's a great example, EGFR, right? Pre, is the preclinical data set, are we at the point for that differentiation that we can, you're confident you can generate that preclinical data set to drive that actually understanding and the differential um, or do you actually think that we're still looking at those sort of outcomes data in a phase two, phase two A, phase two B? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that that's a that's a great question, right? And you know, maybe now sort of going into like going into detail on a specific example. Um, so there's this company called Nuvalent. Um, they just put out some data on their ROS one inhibitor, and that was that was some really good data. And they were seeing responses to ROS1 uh, fusions, you know, drive a, a small percentage of non-small cell lung cancers. They were seeing um, responses in patients refractory to, uh, you know, a, a previous, gen not quite a previous generation drug, but a, a, competitor, a competitor drug called repotrectinib, right? And some of those responses, um, they could explain, uh, but some of them they couldn't, right? And I would guess that, that was just because the, their molecule was more selective and, and more potent. Um, and so, you know, on, in, in, in some ways you can show it preclinically, uh, but sometimes I think you also have to, to, you know, test it out in the clinic. Um, yeah. Does that, so with, this, with, with the platform though, does that mean that, or does it open up the opportunity for you to effectively be going in, looking at doing variant analysis and looking at how that may change the conformation of the protein itself and may provide a more targeted patient population for you to go into? Or is that not on the, on the radar right now? Because patient selection is such a critical element here too when you're running these clinical trials. And I think we've seen failures because it's, there's a retrospective analysis to try and tease apart. Is there a subgroup in there that actually this drug was effective on? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, in, in terms of, you know, let's say kinase resistance, 
you know, we're, we're certainly running these analyses where we take the protein sequence, we mutate, you know, um, certain residues which we expect to cause resistance um, to certain drugs, and we see, you know, how that co-folds with our drugs, let's say. Um, that, that's certainly an analysis that we're sort of running, um, you know, with, with the goal of making molecules that avoid these resistance mutations. So patient stratification, oncology, um, where else do you think the applications of the approach is most relevant right now? Inflammation, like where, where do you think that the, there's also significant opportunity set for you? Or is it really focused on oncology, get that really up and running, get it right, and then decide where, where to go next? Yeah, well, uh, so, you know, in terms of the technology, right, it can do co-folding for any protein and any molecule. So clearly, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be restricted to oncology. You know, we've chosen oncology just to have an initial focus. That's a very large therapeutic area. And, you know, you can spend your life um, in that therapeutic area. But certainly, you know, looking at opportunities to expand, um, you know, going to more therapeutic areas seems like an obvious choice. And that might be internal or it may be through, you know, business development and, and, and through you know, deals with Big Pharma or otherwise. Yeah, I was talking to Tom Barnes, you know, and the deal that they just did with Orna, you know, was effectively to, you know, didn't have the cap- didn't have necessarily the bandwidth and the focus, um, you know, in the vaccine space and said, you know, the best thing for us to do is effectively partner that application out and actually leverage the overall potential for a return on the platform that we've built, you know, in the sort of near to midterm, which you know, we've seen a couple of other companies do. And it seems that there's certainly more interest from a partnering standpoint to do those types of deals. I think it's quite interesting. And for you with the platform, it's, a, it's a, you know, from given the fact that it's an in silico based on the, on the front end, you know, means that it may be a lot easier for you to do those types of deals, you know, versus where you're going in and actually having to do a lot of the, the, the sort of wet lab scientific discovery side of it where multiple people time and, and expense to get it done. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. That's, uh, you know, certainly something we consider in our, our BD process, right? So, you know, if we were to do, to do a collaboration, um, you, you know, how much does that truly leverage um, our technology, you know, compared to uh, sort of more general drug discovery? So, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of discussion just generally about AI um, and ML and the implications uh, from a more societal standpoint, right? Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussions about, are, is it going to replace us at some point? At what point is it sentient or will it ever be sentient? Uh, you know, I, had a, I, I bring this up every now and again on, the, on uh, some of the other podcasts that I've done. Do you have a view on this? Like, where are we going? Like, in some respects, it's almost like a black box. And, you know, you look at how the Economist at Times will present it and say, you know, AI is coming, get ready, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what's, what, where do you think we're going here? And, you know, the DALI 2, just looking at that, it's, it's pretty spectacular what it can do. Um, mm. And it's, it, you know, there's, there is this aspect that I feel that we're starting to get to a point where it's becoming more integrated into humanity. And at times it's hard to differentiate between what's a human and actually what's not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, right? I think one thing that's certain is that it's very, especially in AI, um, it's been very hard to predict the rate of progress. Um, you know, I, I think if you ask many AI researchers, they would say that we wouldn't have had something like DALI 2 
uh, by now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it could very well, uh, the rate of progress could very well increase even more. Um, so I think that's certainly a risk, right? That's why some people are, are really genuinely quite scared. And, you know, there are institutions now for AI safety. Um, I mean, just talking about DALI 2 for a second, I think there are clearly ways where you could make DALI 2 paint a picture that upsets certain people, right? So, you know, I think that is, you know, just with DALI 2, you can cause harm. Um, now, whether DALI 2 can sort of figure that out themselves, well, they would need to have some sort of interaction with the human. Um, but I think that, you know, that could certainly be possible in the next sort of coming decade. So, you know, it's something that is not on the top of my mind, but every so often I do think about it. And I do think, you know, it is possible that we may get ourselves into a sticky situation. Um, so what's the future? The future of AI. <laughs> yes, what's, what, where, where, where is it going? What do you think in, our, in, in your lifetime? Where do you think it's going to go? Where do you think it's going to be? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, that's a very deep question. I mean, so, you know, the way, the way I think about it is, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, will AI cause a fundamental shift in society where, you know, people have nothing to do, uh, right? And, and so the way I think about that is, you know, there were industrial revolutions in the past. And, you know, those industrial revolutions did cause a change, a massive change in distribution about, you know, what skills the workers in a population um, picked up. And, you know, frankly, I think over the next century, you know, that, that will happen again as well with AI. Um, exactly how? I, I'm not sure. But, you know, I think over the next century, you know, there probably will be certain, you know, certain uh, professions that, you know, potentially become significantly, you know, easier with, with AI. Now, one way to look at it is people in those professions are, are really just able to do a lot more, right? So, um, you know, let's say there's someone who writes books. Imagine being able to write instead of just one book a year, um, you could write 10 books a year. Like, wouldn't that be better? <laughs> I, I don't know. I can, the pace of reading that I have, it's a page every hour. So if they write 10, I'm still not sure I get to it. <laughs> when is my well, throughput in yeah, reading? <laughs> you'll probably have better summarization tools um, at that point as well. So, so I can write 10 books and you can read 10 books in, in one month. <laughs> I think, you know, more, you know, probably more troubling. I was, I was reading a piece and, and, Correct me because I may get this wrong. I was reading a piece um, by two academics that basically kind of flipped the paradigm up and instead of and said, let's design in silico, let's design drugs that rather than being beneficial are actually harmful, right? And can we identify new, new toxins? I think there was a huge outcry over this. They built this database, database is locked away somewhere. Um, you know, they talked about uh, other groups trying to actually access it to use use it. Do, am I? Do you recall this? Am I characterizing it correctly? I do, I, do, I do remember. I do remember that paper. Yeah. Do you like what's your what's your sense of that? Because there is this idea now that actually you you know when you think about the application and that was for chemical warfare. Where do we sit on that? On the controls around the utilization of these technologies for those sort of applications? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? Now, so could AI be used for biological warfare? I mean, of, of, course, of course it can, right? If people are using AI to kill cancer cells, why can't they use AI to kill, you know, normal, normal cells or, you know, normal humans? You, you actually absolutely could. Now, whether an AI on its own could figure out how to invent new medicine, that's, that's essentially like, you know, the vision of pressing a button and a drug comes out. You know, as I mentioned, <laughs> I don't think we're quite far away from that, right? So I'm, I'm less scared about that. But someone with intent, could they, you know, could they use, you know, these advanced technologies to, you know, increase the rate of biological warfare technology discovery? Absolutely. Yeah, I think to your point, I think one of the critiques that kept coming up around it was exactly that. Like it's it's well and good for you to turn around and say that you've designed a chemical that will actually inhibit a protein and that protein, if you actually inhibit in any way, is effectively going to kill the cell. But will it be by what's the bioavailability of it? You know, will it be able to cross into the cell? Like what is the overall PKPD effectively? Can you synthesize it? You know, so it, it did open it up, but it does. It's certainly what struck me in reading about and um, reading the paper was you know, I've always kind of looked at it from the mentality of positivity, right, and actual therapeutic benefit. And actually, there is this contrary application, potentially, as you look at some of these technologies, which we've had to face for other technologies also, right? I mean, it's just the name of the game. Um, but it, it just struck me um, how fast that can actually move, um, given where we are from a technological standpoint today. Um, can you talk a little bit about you? First time CEO, right? Um, I mean, you really have done a great job. Um, um, and you know, what I, what I, I'm always impressed with in talking to you is not only, you know, the, the knowledge base that you have, but also just the actual enthusiasm and drive that you have as you th- and excitement in building the company and moving things forward. Um, where does that come from? Like, could, what makes you you? Like, what is what's unique about you? What makes you you? Or what are you doing being a CEO? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's, a, that's a great question, right? And, you know, I, I have, you know, thought about this a, a, a bit more. You know, I, I think one thing, you know, one, one perhaps piece of advice I'd give, you know, other young people who, you know, who want to try and build a company is, is you should read books. Because, you know, nothing can replace experience, like generally, genuinely nothing, which is why hiring is very important. Um, but the closest thing that can, you know, potentially replace experience is, you know, accumulating knowledge through other means. And, and, and that's really, you know, books. Um, and I guess for science, that would be scientific literature. Um, so if you can sort of read those you know, voraciously and really try and, you know, maximize your rate of this knowledge accumulation, you know, I think that will give you a better chance of sort of just understanding, you know, what's the, what's the right decision to do. But as I said, nothing can, you know, replace experience, which is why when you start building a company and, you know, let's say you uh, raise the seed round, then it's very important to make the right hires. That's the, that's, most and you know, I think the, your point about reading is 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 a very important one, and 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 interacting with people much smarter than you, right? Like the amount that I learn every time I speak speak to people like you, you know, about your areas of expertise. I mean, I always learn a lot from it. But there's a time element here, right? Too, you you you're getting a company up and going. You know, you you've you've 
you're dealing with HR issues, you're dealing with probably corporate legal issues, just getting things all in place, you're dealing with IP, you've got your R&D going, you know, um, and you're constantly looking at your budget and figuring out when do I need to raise next, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> how, you know, it's, it's, I've always found it, I've personally, I've always found it challenging to balance that, taking time to actually, you know, do the reading and ensure that you're staying up to speed on things but also being responsive and actually building the company and getting all of the kind of just the bricks and mortar, you know, the block and tackling done in the organization itself. And then you obviously you've got a personal life too, right? So how do you, how do you think about juggling all of those things, you know, <laughs> or maybe yeah. no personal life at all. Cause it's like your, your sleeping bag is in your office and like, that's just the name of the game uh, right now. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question, right? So, you know, if I were to on it, to answer that candidly, you know, so I don't really have a personal life. Um, but that's just me. I'm not saying other people should not have a personal life. In fact, I think other people should have a personal life. Um, you know, but like clearly, you know, and Elon Musk says this as well. You got to work hard. Like, like especially if you do, if you do want to do something when you're young. I think you know that is just a necessity. I think you know once you've sort of hired a team and things are starting to go, it's almost your job as a CEO to just sort of un- unblock them, right? Um, you know, so if there's any kind of you know, shitty task that needs to be done, that needs to be done. I think very often the CEO should, you know, go and do that task. If it requires, you know, copying, you know, uh, copying some data from an Excel file into another Excel file and no one's doing that, you, you know, I think, you know, for in a small company, I think the CEO should do that. Yes. Um, and so, <laughs> Yeah. If that's, if, that, if that's what's required to get the job done, because then other people who are more specialized than you and you've hired them to you know, do more specialized roles than you can focus on their specialized roles. But is there not a point where you burn out, right? Like that if you, you've got, you can't be running sprinting all the time, right? You've got to, got to get into a rhythm that actually will allow you to do the hit a plateau and like just, just be there long term, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, so, yeah, that, that, that's a great question as well, right? I think people know what, what's the, sort of sustainable for them. Um, and, you know, I was literally just talking about this, actually. If you want to get a medicine for patients, that is going to be, you know, a, a potentially a 10-year journey. And so you have to operate in a way that you feel will be sustainable for that period of time. And for different people, that's, that's different. And, you know, they should feel free to, you know, work in a way that, you know, is sustainable over that period of time. All right. So I, I, you know, it will be interesting to see the evolution. Uh, I'd love to have you back in maybe a year or two to see how things have evolved as you think about the, you know, the balancing of your life. Question for you though, you got, you got a degree in natural sciences, right? So you're a scientist, like you are a purebred, like bench guy, you know, and now being CEO. How, how you know, th- that transition, like there are times I'll see CEOs that effectively cannot leave the lab alone. Like they need to almost be in there micromanaging. Like uh, I remember at one point, um, uh, uh, an R&D team effectively just locking me out of the labs and said, you, your, your past will not get you into the labs anymore. You're done, right? How, how do you, like, how do you, do you miss it? How do you do move from the micromanagement and the scientific side actually into running a company? Because they're very different, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a great question, right? I, I think you know, 
like the way I do it for me is, you know, during the day, you know, that's when I'm really sort of trying to troubleshoot for the team. And then, you know, maybe someone will need my time for half an hour. I'm, 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 I'll, I'll do that. You know, and there'll be, you know, sort of various meetings here and there, right? That's during the day. Um, and then, you know, where I can continue to sort of, you know, build, uh, like, you know, you know, the code and um, all the other scientific stuff, um, I, I sort of tend to do that in the night and on the weekend. Okay. So any advice for anybody else out there, you know, that are starting, that is looking to start their own company, get, get up, go out, get financed? Um, any advice for them? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question as well. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think, so at least from my, I, I'll use myself as an example, you know, working in a biotech, I think helps a lot as well, um, just to sort of, you know, see how that's operated and, you know, get a bit of basic experience in the industry. I think doing that, you know, is, is never a bad thing, right? And so, um, you know, that, 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 that's a good idea. And as I mentioned, you know, try and read a lot, try and do more stuff than uh, what, you, you know, your role is. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know. Well, you co-founded another company, right? Before this. Well, yeah. So, so, so yes, this, this is technically my second company, yes. So, like, um, were there learnings from that? You know, that was a Y Combinator company, if I remember correctly, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so there, there were a lot of learnings from that. Uh, I mean, you know, co-founder issues and co-found like that. That's that's a challenge, right? So, you know, if you're going to go, if you're going to go into, um, you know, if, if you're going to sort of go into business, you got to um, make sure that that co-founder relationship is tight, <laughs> and that, and that you're all yes. fully in. And frankly, you know, I, I was actually not fully in the company as well. So I, I you know, I, I blame myself um, partly. Uh, but, you know, I think it's very important to have a very tight relationship with co-founders and for, for everyone to sort of be all in on the company. Yes, the co-founder issue, it, 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 it does rear its head on a regular basis, right? That there becomes a disconnect and um, uh, perspectives on outcomes for the company and, and overall financial returns start to change people's visions or views and how well they're actually able to work together. So I think that's a huge learning point uh, in making sure you're founding the company with the right person who's philosophically aligned with you. Um, and overall, as you think about roles, responsibilities and building the company is very much aligned. Uh, otherwise, things can really get out of whack um, around um, that. <laughs> there's actually one more thing as well that I wanted to mention. I think as a young founder, what's very easy to do is um, sort of think short term and not think long term about the implications of, of doing this, right? So I'll give you an example. You know, if you, like, let's say you, you're trying to raise some money for your first company um, and then, you know, someone gives you an extremely uh, onerous, um, you know, set of terms, right? You could take that and then just sort of start. But you got to then consider the long term, you know, the long term implications of that. You may never be able to raise again. Um, similarly, you know, you you know, you might really need to make a hire, um, and this person, you know, maybe does it, but not quite. Um, you know, making that hire might be good in the short term, but might not be good in the long term. So I think you, you know that one has to sort of constrain, one has to um, restrain themselves as well. I, I think that's a really important point. And culturally, you know, b bringing in 
they may tick all the boxes from a skill set standpoint, but culturally may not be a good fit within the organization. Those first few hires that you make really set that sort of cultural foundation um, for the organization long term. The other aspect too is valuation. You know, I think you're right, absolutely right on terms, right? You, you have got onerous terms in there. You've got to live with them. But also sort of the valuation that you're looking at, if you're looking long term, you tend to be more less sensitive around valuation because you're, you, you, you'll get where you need to be at the appropriate time. Did you, you know, how, how, did, you, how did you think about that when you were actually looking at getting Charm financed and thinking about the sort of the implications both from capital in, terms for that capital, and sort of pre and post for the organization? Yeah, I mean that you know that that's 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 a great question as well. Um, I mean, I think you have to sort of look at you know what's the ultimate goal, um, and you know let's say the ultimate goal. Let's say you're a precision oncology biotech. You know, you go public. Um, you know, trading like you can't expect to then you know unless we're in you know a, a super crazy environment like we were in 2021. Um, you can't expect to have like you know a multi-billion dollar valuation until you have strong clinical proof of concept. Um, and so you've got to think, you've got to work backwards, right? If you're going to go public, you know, at a like 600 million pre-money valuation, you know, which some people could still say is, you know, quite high in this environment, you then got to work backwards, you know, what should your Series E, Series C um, pre-money be, what should your Series B pre-money be, what should your Series A pre-money be? And you want to make sure that you can sort of grow, um, you know, rather than sort of getting stuck in evaluation. And all of that, you went through that process as you actually looked at setting valuation for Charm in your in your mind, just thinking about those steps. A, excuse me, A to B to C uh, into potential IPO or public market listing. Uh, absolutely right, and you know certainly one thing that is very challenging that or that could be challenging is you know a lot of companies that were trading at you know let's say uh, three billion in 2021. Are now trading at 500 million. Yeah. Um, you know, potentially when there hasn't been that many sort of um, you know data readouts or whatever. So that's that's clearly challenging because you thought that you could have thought that I'll be a three billion dollar company when I get to the same stage, whereas now it's fundamentally different. And so I think you know a lot a lot of companies you know will sort of be stuck in this valuation trap, and you know they're going to have to either raise on a down round um, or just sort of do a pharma deal or just not raise at all. Right, right. I mean, it, it is interesting. I had a technical analyst, Rich Ross, on, um, I think at the start of the year. And, you know, I always looked at companies being on a, on a very fundamental basis. Like, what are the fundamentals for the company? But to your point, fundamentals in the market, it's, it, it really is a macroeconomic drive, right, that brings everybody along. Um, in it. So, you know, the fundamentals for companies, especially when you don't have that sort of clinical data, are kind mm-hmm. of, and I, I say this, you know, it, you know, understand with multiple caveats in there, but are kind of irrelevant because effectively you're riding the wave of what's going on generally within the marketplaces, which is exactly what we're seeing happen right now. So I think that's a really interesting and good point. Um, well, look, this has been phenomenal. It's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're on a different time zone than me, so I appreciate you on a Friday evening uh, doing this. No um, but I've just learned you have no life, you know, outside of work. So, you know, you're probably going to hang up and, you know, go in and do some experiments or look at some data now for the next four or five hours. 
<laughs> Max, this was great. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate you having me on. Catch you later. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 